Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined, as always, by Stuart Mandel. Stu, before we get to talking about some football, let's talk about what we like to eat during football games. Uh, the Super Bowl just happened last weekend, and any uh, any game-watching event, whether it's the XFL or college football, uh, my go-to is a Trader Joe's staple, and that is the sweet potato tortilla chips. Have you had them yet? I'll be honest. I didn't even know um, that sweet potato tortilla chips were a thing, but you're saying I can get them at Trader Joe's. Yeah, the sweet and the salty aspect is big. I didn't really, I wasn't going in there looking for it. I kind of stumbled upon them. I'm like, let me try this. And they're really, really good. It's uh, it's pretty much the only snack food that I think I eat, at least in terms of chips now. Uh, I would highly recommend you trying them. I will. I will. So we had the Super Bowl over the weekend, and then it very quickly turned into an eventful week in college football. Wednesday was signing day. We're going to get into that a little bit later, but before that... Obviously, the big, big news Tuesday, Mark D'Antonio retiring as Michigan State's coach right before signing day. Um, We wanted to bring on our guest, Nick Baumgartner. He covers both Michigan State and Michigan for The Athletic. He's following the coaching search as we speak. So let's bring him on. And now we're joined by our guest. He is Nick Baumgartner. He's a senior writer and columnist for the Athletics Detroit site. He is all over Michigan, has been for a long time, as well as Michigan State and the Lions. Uh, Nick, thanks for joining us on the Audible today. Yeah, guys, no problem. All right, so let's start. Obviously, huge news right before signing day. Mark D'Antonio, there's been some rumblings for about the last six months about this possibly happening. But the timing, I think, really kind of stuns some people that it that it went down the way it did. And I think, and we're going to get into a little bit more about what his legacy actually is at Michigan State. But what was your reaction to when you heard it? And what did you, you know, how do you think people should view the timing of this? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think that there, you know, I uh, haven't talked to people yesterday. You know, there were some at Michigan State um, that were totally caught off guard on Tuesday uh, when the announcement was made, but at the same time, you know, those people weren't, so you know, like shocked because I think a lot of people at Michigan State in the higher level had known uh, for several weeks or maybe more than a month that this was certainly possible. And like you said, Bruce, I mean, this is something that's been talked about, um, you know, behind the scenes for more than almost a year, I would say at least, and maybe even longer. I mean, you know, Michigan State's had so many issues off the field um, that have just lingered. And, you know, the, the institution, the administration, everybody has sort of tried to, you know, talk around it, I guess is the best way I can say it, uh, and act like it's not happening. And it just always felt like, you know, these issues, this lawsuit that they're still involved with and everything else, um, the longer they continued on, the more difficult it was going to be for this to continue. And then of course the, the down, the downtick in, in performance on the field, you know, sort of, uh, amplifies that. So, um, you know, I wasn't shocked. This was the probably the least shocked I've, I've been of the, of these like sudden announcements. Uh, the timing was weird and that was, you know, there's been reports that have come out in recent days and over the last week and a half or so about, you know, further allegations from that lawsuit, um, from Curtis Blackwell, the former staffer here. So, you know, he said that that had nothing to do with it, but I mean, we can look at this, you know, <laughs> with logic and say there's no way that that had no impact on it. And I, I assume that a lot of folks will look at it that way. And they'll also look at that money, you know, the 4.3 million that he got on January 15th. 
um, you know, it was avoidable. Of, uh, the bad timing was avoidable, and I think that that's what everybody sort of took away from it. He said, Nick, that uh, you know, he started with a with a kind of an open letter at his press conference, and he said he'd been working on it yeah. for over a week as he was on airplanes. Well, he was on airplanes because he was out recruiting, and I guess that makes Correct. that leads to the logical question: If he knew he was going to retire, why did he continue to go on recruiting players to Michigan State? Yeah, right. That, that's why it makes no sense. I mean, it's it's one of these things where he tried to say it as, you know, as I was doing this, I was, you know, going through the process of asking myself, you know, am I going to be, am I prepared to commit to these kids for the next three or four years? Um, and then eventually, you know, it's, you know, I decided I wasn't. And, you know, that I, I guess he could maybe claim he writes this letter as he's coming back from his last recruiting visit, if he wants, uh, and say, you know, in that sense. But at the same time, it seems very convenient uh, on some of these things, which has become kind of, you know, uh, what these coaches do over the years in terms of their time frame. I, I just, there's just no way there's something over the last 30 days that, you know, or maybe longer. I have no doubt, guys, that he was contemplating this. We all know he was contemplating this, but the timing of it just with the fact that he received that bonus payment. I mean, I said the other day, I wrote it, I was like, you know, if he had resigned or retired the day after that bonus came in, would that look any worse than doing it the day before signing day? I would say probably not. It would be about the same. It would look bad no matter what. So, you know, that's the thing I think that really is kind of uh, ridiculous here is that this could have been done in December. This could have been done in September. You know, if he wanted to, he could have negotiated his severance and whatever else. And it would have been, you know, whatever. And they would have had to jump on it. Um, but he didn't because, you know, you have to wonder, did he want to still keep coaching? Uh, and, you know, things had got to a point with the off-the-field stuff where it was just, we, you can't keep going here. Um, or was it truly burnout? Or was it both? You know, I mean, I think it may be a factor, you know, all factors, I, I guess, may be considered there. Nick, Stu and I had this conversation a little bit uh, yesterday uh, on Wednesday after D'Antonio's press conference the day before. I think Stu had made a, a tweeted out something about something that D'Antonio had said at the podium mm-hmm. kind of struck a chord similar, he thought, to Chris Peterson. And and my reaction yeah. to that was I didn't see it at all that way, whereas I was like maybe some of the sentiment about just not enjoying it and being worn down was there. But I, when I heard Chris Peterson talk, uh, whatever it was, you know, a month ago, I mm-hmm. felt like here was a guy who was like, all right, there's a lot of other stuff out there in life. I want to see what's out yeah. there. Kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I, I felt like Chris Peterson was kind of running to something where I felt like, you know, use the word, you know, burned out or worn mm-hmm. down. And even when he said, if you're 50 50, this is the, this is yeah. not the profession to be 50 50 about it. You got to be 100%. You know, saying all that, if he was, you know, the last four years pretty much have they've been slightly better than 500, it feels like the gap between them. In the top of the division, Ohio State is recruiting at a ridiculously high level. Uh, James Franklin and Penn State have have kicked into a different level than they were, you know, four years ago. And even Jim Harbaugh, Mm -hmm. it's not like they've been a disaster. They just haven't been able to to overcome Ohio State. So do you think it was just a frustration as much as anything? Or what do you think? Because he's he's by nature, it seems like we all know D'Antonio a little bit and have been around him. Yeah. It seems like 
you know, he his his default expression is looks to be exacerbated, even if you may not. Right. Be. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, exactly. what do you what was your read on it behind the behind the scenes? I think it, I think it's it's a it's a true maybe a combination of really everything because I think for years we've sort of around here uh, been working under the you know sort of uh, assumption or maybe even not an assumption but you know the fact that D'Antonio was probably not going to be a coach that just hung on forever. Uh, I think that we all. You know, I think family pull. I think it was going to be tough for him to leave no matter what. But I think, you know, the family time thing uh, was going to be, you know, he's had health problems in the past. He had the heart attack uh, during a season the one year. Uh, so I think it, I I never thought Mark D'Antonio was going to be the guy, a guy that was hanging on until his 70s. I think at some point he was going to stop and then live, you know, the next part of his life with his wife and, you know, his family and everything else. And I think that that was going to happen. And I think that that was always going to be difficult for him. But I think, Bruce, you have a great point when you say that Chris Peterson maybe was running to something, uh, whereas Mark D'Antonio looked like a guy who, I mean, it almost guys, I mean, not to be like whatever, but it almost felt like a guy who'd been told, you know, like given a bad diagnosis or something, it was told you can't keep working and you have to, you know, this 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 choice is not really in your hands anymore. And that's what it felt like uh, because, he, you know, he was obviously emotional. Um, you know, he's been frustrated, I think, with everything that's gone on. But I think the frustration is as much about everything that's happened off the field and the problems that that's, that's caused for them as, as it is the losing on the field. I mean, they can't be separated. They go hand in hand, you know, and I said the other day, I was like, you know, in 2017, they had four players get charged with sexual assault. Um, you, you don't survive that as a coach. I mean, you just, you're not going to. And as long as, you know, this was not a sustainable situation, he coached a couple more years and eventually all that stuff off the field, if there's more stuff coming out, you know, if you're, if, if your program's having problems, that stuff's going to come out, it's going to be a problem for you. And eventually it's going to end. And, you know, I don't think we can totally separate the two and say it was simply a wins and losses thing. I think there are other factors probably at play in that, in that whole situation. So when I look, I'm, I'm curious to get both your guys' opinions about this and I'll set it up this way. I was just looking at back at that. It's just an unbelievable run he had from 2010 to 2015 they won at least 11 games five out of those six seasons and to put that in perspective they they had never won 11 games in a season the entire history of the program and they'd only won 10 games twice so I mean it's just astonishing what he did during that time and obviously there was a playoff berth and and Big Ten title three Big Ten titles but then when it got ugly it got really ugly uh three and nine then the, the return to ten and three seven and six seven and six and on top of that, all the things you're talking about, Nick, the sexual assault allegations against his players, uh, and I would also just say the the, the stubbornness, uh, the, the the refusal to change to, to make any coaching changes. So I'm curious, both your opinions on this. When we look back ten years from now, how will the D'Antonio era be remembered? How much of it will be about all the success? How much will be about the way it ended? Uh, I think that. In ten years, uh, you know, again, I think that everyone's going to remember the the top half of this decade, this last decade, the twenty ten through twenty fifteen. Uh, everyone at Michigan State's going to remember that fondly, and they're never going to forget that. I think he's always going to be remembered as the greatest, you know, sort of on field coach they they had in uh, in the modern era. Um, you know, he was able to accomplish things at Michigan State that you know, as someone who's grown up here, and I know you guys have followed college football forever too. We all thought there was no way Michigan State in a modern world was going to be a team or a program that could compete consistently like that for that many years. Like, you know, every couple of years, yeah, sure. But from 2010 to 2015, they were one of the best programs in the country, and it, and it was uh, they were on a short list for sure. I mean, they were as good as anybody. Their defense was ridiculous. 
Uh, he was an outstanding football coach, uh, especially defensively, and an outstanding talent evaluator and developer. Um, but at the same time, you know, even 10 years from now, I just don't think you're going to be able to look back on it without remembering, you know, how it ended. Um, remembering the, you know, the, the bad stuff, you know, that's happened off the field. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to overwhelm the good stuff. I think in time, the good stuff will probably be the thing that people remember the most. Um, but it's not, others aren't going to forget, you know, how it ended either. And I think that that's uh, an important thing to note is that they'll be tied together and, and that that'll all be packaged in with his legacy, you know, for, for the rest of the time, probably. Nick, let me ask you just to, to kind of follow up on Stu's question. Um, is how much do you think his legacy is a TBD in this because of this ongoing Curtis Blackwell case against Antonio? And I mean, honestly, a lot of us outside of Michigan probably haven't followed it that closely. I mean, where do you think is going to happen out of that? Well, I think that that, yeah, that's the, that's the still the hanging thing, right? So it's, you know, if, if Curtis Blackwell has, you know, more, information or allegations or claims of things that went awry or, or what have you that can be proven um, and they're you know worse than what's already been thrown out there um, you know then yeah then yeah that's gonna obviously impact you know how people remember him because I mean if it gets worse you know because in some ways I don't you know this probably isn't over you know lawsuit's not over they haven't settled it nobody settled it they're still fighting it you know Michigan State has claimed that um, you know, none of this is true, but, you know, I mean, that's stuff that if it continues to happen, I mean, you're going to have to find proof on that at, at some point. So I think it's all still sort of up in the air a little bit. Um, I think in terms of football, obviously that legacy is done. But, you know, what happens from here, you know, I'm not real sure. And I think that that's something that will probably complicate the coaching search to a degree and that, you know, uh, how much I don't know, but at least to a point where they're going to have to prove to, you know, be it Luke Fickle or, or any other candidate that, you know, there's not some you know, mountain of stuff sitting under a rug somewhere and there's not a, you know, tornado about to happen around the corner. And, you know, that's not an easy conversation to have with someone who doesn't have to take your job. So, I mean, like those are things they're still going to have to discuss. And for D'Antonio, that's still something that's going to hang over his head until, you know, we'll see. We'll see how long. So I'm interested, you know, you cover both Michigan and Michigan State and obviously kind of the defining uh, thing, I think, about D'Antonio's tenure is the dominance over Michigan, which they, that program had never done anything like that before to win seven of eight against their rival. And then it just seemed like once Harbaugh got there and got settled, it flipped back. Um, you know, we'll talk about specific candidates here in a second, but in general, whoever the next Michigan State coach is, is it possible for both those programs to be good at the same time? Or does Michigan State need, you know, during that time, you know, Brady Hoke was, was nobody would say he was a successful, Rich Rod first, then Brady Hoke. Uh, like, do they is Michigan State's success in some ways tied to the the relative stability going on going on or not going on at Michigan? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's one that we've like complicated compli- contemplated for years here. I used to always be of the mind that no, that it wasn't possible that Michigan State, you know, that but it, it, both teams were not going to be able to, you know, be at a playoff level uh, together. I didn't think that there was enough enough to go around in the Midwest. I still would probably, you know, lean on that stance. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if it works one way more than it works the other, but, you know, I, I, it's never happened. It's never been a thing uh, ever. And as we sit today, you know, <laughs> neither team is in position to be, you know, playoff playoff worthy. But I just don't think that, you know, within the state of Michigan, obviously Michigan State recruits, Michigan barely recruits Ohio anymore, you know, under Harbaugh. They just don't do it. 
Um, so, you know, with Ohio State being what it is, uh, Notre Dame, Penn State, Michigan, and Michigan State, you know, within this, the, the Michigan is the weakest, you know, sort of in-state talent base compared, you know, compared to Ohio, compared to Pennsylvania, uh, compared to what Notre Dame can do nationally, of course. So within the state of Michigan, there's only so many prospects to go around. Uh, for a place like Michigan State, you're going to have to get super creative. And then for Michigan, too, you're going to have to get creative as well. So I I have, I would have to believe that, you know, when I, uh, to be true if we actually saw it happen. I mean, I, I just, it's never, ever happened. You know, when Michigan State's been really good, Michigan State's had problems, or Michigan's had problems, uh, and vice versa, you know. And, and maybe Michigan State's lack of success in, this, in the 80s and 90s and 70s uh, could be tied to maybe Michigan a little bit. Um, but... You know, I'm not sure going forward if that stays, you know, a two-way street, but it's never been done. And, um, you know, I'm not sure uh, if that can happen. I think both teams could be Big Ten, you know, contenders if Ohio State wasn't, you know, rocking and rolling. But, you know, beyond that, I think that would be a stretch. Nick, let's get a little bit to the coaching search. As we tape this Thursday morning, and it's obviously a very fluid situation, uh, one of the favorites, it would appear, would be Cincinnati's Luke Fickle. Yep. He's done a really good job. He's obviously a lifelong Buckeye, coached and played there. Uh, and a lot of people who have kind of talked to him and talked to people close to him have said there's very few jobs that he sees as a real fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I understand, he would not go to Michigan. Ohio State is obviously right. a, a dream job kind of place, but right now Ryan Day has got that job. doesn't look like he's, that job is going to be open anytime soon. I think Penn State would be one of those, but obviously James Franklin has that job. Uh, we don't know how messy he sees Michigan State. From my understanding, mm-hmm. Luke Fickle uh, knows the knows some of the challenges that and the, and the limitations of being in the Group of Five. Yeah. I mean, if you're at a place like Cincinnati where he has won 22 games the last two years, um, who would you? Let's just put this aside. I want to throw some yeah. names at you. Um, and I'm going to give you four names. So there's Luke Fickle, who obviously knows the Big Ten well and mm-hmm. is recruiting in that footprint where D'Antonio has had success. Yep. Uh, then there's Robert Sala, who's a Michigan native, done a really good job, has impressed a lot of people in the NFL world. There's now the defense coordinator with the Niners, and a lot of people think will be a head coach in the NFL yep. in another year because they're loaded on that side of the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, an- another name to... To consider, but I'm not sure if it's viable at this point, uh, just in terms of the timing, is Broncos offensive coordinator Pat Shermer, who yep. was recently fired by the Giants. Uh, he just did a deal with the Broncos, but obviously has deep ties to Michigan State, having coached and played there. And then the last name to me is really a wild card, and that's Brett Bielema. Mm. Won 40 games in his last four years at Wisconsin. Big personality guy, knows the Big Ten. He is actually now with the Giants uh, on their defensive staff. Who do you who would you handicap and say okay this is the guy I think would give them the best chance to to compete with Ohio State at, at the top of the division? I think it would be. I mean, I think it's fickle. I, I think that in some in some strange ways, um, and you know, Bielema is an interesting one because it's been a minute and we forget maybe how how good he was in the Big Ten because it had been a minute since he was. In the Big Ten, of course, he wasn't in the Big Ten East the way it sits today. Um, not to take anything away from him, but that's just the reality of the situation, uh, as this is one of the more difficult divisions in, in college football. But I, I would say fickle because, you know, for a number of reasons. The thing that, you know, Stewart asked, if Michigan and Michigan State can both be, you know, you know, elite at the same time, 
and maybe that was how I read it in my own mind. I think that they both can be sort of competitive at the same time, and I think Fickle can get them to that situation because of his ability to recruit Ohio and sort of his ability to be a, you know, trestle ball type coach, which is essentially a guy that's, you know, a second version of D'Antonio 20 years younger. I mean, Luke Fickle's a defensive coach, uh, maybe not as accomplished a defensive coach as Mark D'Antonio was when he got the job um, at Michigan State, but he's a defensive coach, pretty well respected in that area. He's a younger coach who understands that offenses have evolved and, you know, you've got to, you know, evolve with it. Um, and then Luke Fickle has been for, you know, the better part of a decade here, you know, one of the best, you know, recruiters in the state of Ohio that, that exists. And, um, you know, if you're at Michigan State, they had major success. I mean, that is why Mark D'Antonio's uh, success level skyrocketed the way it did, is he was able to go into those pockets of Ohio and find guys that other people weren't looking at and develop the heck out of them. And it's not a coincidence that Luke Fickle's arrival at Cincinnati you know, uh, came up the same time that Michigan State's roster started to downgrade a little bit. You know, Mark Stoops and Luke Fickle hurt Mark D'Antonio more than Michigan ever did on the recruiting trail by their ability to go into Ohio and sign kids that Ohio State wasn't going to take, um, you know, that Ohio State could have had but didn't want. And then you build your program off those kids, and it worked wonders for D'Antonio. It's worked for Stoops. It's worked for Fickle. I think Fickle checks probably every box Michigan State would want in a head coach. Bruce, right up until the point you said about the thing about Michigan, is that Luke, if the Michigan job were to come open and, and Luke Fickle was you know this hot name and Michigan would consider him, he doesn't want it, right? Because he doesn't like Michigan. And you, <laughs> Michigan State's entire football program you know, was centered around a hatred for Michigan and a lack of respect from from Ann Arbor and everything else, and it worked. And so Michigan State will surely look to continue that. And Fickle, you know, as I see it today, there's not a box that he doesn't check. You know, Bielema would be the second most interesting person in that conversation. Narduzzi would have been, uh, possibly. But, you know, I mean, obviously he says he's staying, and, and maybe that's uh, – but I still think Fickle would have been a better situation, uh, possibly a better candidate than even Narduzzi, who had been here because of his ability and proven ability to recruit in Ohio. And I think that's got to be number one on the list. Yeah, I think I would agree exactly with Nick on those power rankings there. Bielema is intriguing in that he has had mm-hmm. success as a Big Ten head coach, but he was last in the Big Ten in 2012, so I'm not even yeah. sure how relevant that would be now, and Fickle is obviously on the upward trend. But he, in fairness, he has been a he has been a Big Ten head coach. Oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Luke Fickle's, you know, he's at Cincinnati, and he, he fixed what Tommy Tuberville had kind of sucked the life out of in Cincinnati, but... It's, you know, again, one of the things, not to interrupt you too much on this too, but like, you know, Robert Sala, we have no idea. Yeah, that's you know, a He's really res- well respected in the NFL, but that's a, you know, I, who knows with that one. It's just, I guess that speaks to the nature of it where it's like, Bielen was the one guy we know is coached in the Big Ten, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's those two, and I would feel good with either. Uh, just slight edge to Fickle just because of the, you know, both the on-field and the recruiting success right now in that exact part of the country where he'll need to be successful at Michigan State. Uh, Nick, before we go, we wanted to ask you real quick about the Wolverines. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you look at their signing class this year. The number, the overall rank, I mean, they're on 247, number two in the Big Ten, number 14 overall. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, But then you look at the class itself, no top 100 players, you know, and only three in the top 200 I'm curious what the perspective is there on how Harbaugh's recruiting these days, because obviously when he first got there, that he made all these waves with the sleepover and the yep. satellite camps and all that. And 
it just seems like the last couple years it's maybe quiet. You don't necessarily hear that buzz yeah. as much. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, you guys know this that when a coach takes over a program, of course, you know, a big name, especially, you're going to get those two years or those two full cycles, the first two, uh, and you're going to have the ability to sell, you know, that hope. And this is brand new, and you can be part of something different. And Michigan sold the heck out of that, and you know, had two outstanding classes in sixteen and seventeen on paper. Seventeen didn't work out as well as they would have liked, but when you get into year, my theory has always been: you get to year three or four, and you haven't delivered on any kind of championship. All of that new car smell goes away, and everything gets more difficult. You know, they 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 missed on so many guys in 2018 that I think it it, it forced them to sort of reevaluate everything they do about recruiting. And they did a nice job, I thought, last year of getting back to being in that you know, number eight through 12, you know, area. I, I always call it no man's land because you're not in the playoff and you're not really bad, but you're just kind of there. And in today's football, it's just, what are you? Um, so they're right in that spot. You know, they're recruiting well, like you said, uh, like right around like kind of what Penn State's doing, but it's certainly not at Ohio State's level and it's really not close. And you can see when they go on the field, um, you know, this you know, this is this is falling apart in terms of a rivalry. It's not a rivalry anymore in terms of a game. It's just a game that Ohio State decides it's going to care more about than the, the, than the previous one. So they pound them and the talent gap is just, it's just widening every year. And so it's just, they're stuck. They're in this, they're in this weird, you know, you know, weird space. And I would, I would argue now they're actually sliding down, you know, no man's land uh, because Penn state, I think was probably ahead of them this year. Wisconsin was ahead of them this year. Um, you know, they were at best, you know, Minnesota was ahead of them, I guess this year. Uh, they were at best the fourth best team in the league. Um, you know, they underperformed. I think that that that's noticed by recruits as well. So, you know, I think that Jim Harbaugh will always be able to deliver Michigan a class that's you know numbers number nine through thirteen or fourteen, and I think he'll always be able to develop it at a better rate than Brady Hope did. But I still don't think that's at this at this point as it's going right now. That's not enough to do or solve whatever's happening with Ohio State. So. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, Michigan needs Ohio State to take a fall. They need Ohio State to stumble or trip or or, or open the door or something because, you know, I, I'm not sure what else they can do uh, in the current situation if everything continues the way the way it's been to totally change that. You know, I mean, that's that's their reality, but I, they're not alone in that. There's a lot – everyone else in the Big Ten right now is, is looking at that exact same situation because Ohio State has just distanced itself so much uh, to a point that, you know, we really we really have never seen it like that before. Well, we thank uh, Nick for coming on today. Uh, plenty of of other uh, – the Athletic, you know, obviously covering this story from all angles. Um, but in terms of podcasts, you can get uh, more of Nick on The Beat, the podcast he does with Brendan Quinn. And then, of course, for Michigan State specific, Green and White Noise with Chris Vanini and Colton Pouncey. So all over this story. Nick, thanks so much for coming on with us today. Absolutely, guys. Take care. Before we get into signing day, uh, Bruce, I should have said this right off the top, but you were literally the first person um, last summer on this podcast. I don't remember if it was maybe July, August. You said, I think Mark D'Antonio is going to retire after the season. And at that time, it was like, whoa, really? Like, what are you talking about? And then as the season went on, it seemed like, okay, this is definitely becoming a realistic possibility. So kudos to you for for breaking that news, if you will. I don't know if I was breaking it, but it was... uh you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see him not be there just because having done a lot of Michigan State games and been around there, 
you know, you don't, you don't really remember it much before he was there at this point, you know? I mean, I don't remember Bobby Williams and Saban. I mean, obviously, I know they coached there. Surely you remember John L. Smith. Just from the, the, just from the halftime interview kind of clips, I don't remember, you know, I remember it being really inconsistent up and down, and, and Antonio brought consistency to, the, to, to that program and made it tough. And he, gave, and he gave them an identity. You knew exactly what Michigan State was going to be. Uh, for most of those years, but then unfortunately he didn't evolve. So um, I think you know what I think it's. I don't know if it's that. I think from talking to people who are close to that program, to me the biggest issue was staffing issues came back to bite him. You know, he had Narduzzi was a great defensive coordinator. He moved on, but I think he struggled on with offense. He struggled moving some of the parts around. Maybe he hung on to assistants. Uh, the analogy I would use a little bit was it reminds me of what I heard about Syracuse under Paul Pasqualoni. Syracuse used to be really, really good. Uh, and then there were some of the staff issues came where maybe some of the assistant hires weren't as good. And he wasn't going to force guys out. He would just kind of try to coach around them as best he could. And eventually it caught up to him. And it feels like it did a little bit as well as, as, as Nick said, you know, just the rest of the top of the division got so much better especially in how it recruited and i also i mean i also think one thing that doesn't get talked about is at all we think of michigan state we think defense but he had three nfl quarterbacks in a row brian hoyer uh, kirk cousins and then connor cook and obviously the guys after connor cook left just did not come close to that level so yes they needed probably a change in 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 scheme and new minds on offense but they also so much in in college football today is tied to the quarterback and they just they just really struggled at that position um okay turning our attention to signing day i thought you know at this point most of the kids signed in december february signing day pretty anticlimactic but there actually were a couple notable developments one being most notably clemson had the number one class for an entire year and was assumed they would sign, finish with the number one class. And then on the last day, Georgia got a couple big pickups, and Georgia finishes number one, uh, consensus number one in recruiting, for the second time in three years. So Kirby Smart having now signed the number one class two out of the last three years in a top three class four straight years, is it safe to say national championship or bust at this point when you have that kind of talent? I feel like it was that it was that going into going into twenty twenty season, yeah. And that's and look, some of these kids we're talking about now, in, in this number one ranked class, you would expect them, you know, down the road that's putting a lot on their plate. But just considering how much they have stockpiled with these with these high profile recruits, it's like, I don't know. If you're a Georgia fan, I you know, because I tweeted something out about where they were ranked, how many five stars they've signed in the last four years, and. One of the dominant responses I got back was, "How many championships do they have to show for it?" And I don't know. I mean, honestly, there's a lot of pressure on Todd Munkin to come in and and fix a lot of problems. It feels like the new offensive coordinator. Well, I think that first of all, they came as close as you possibly could to winning a national championship two years ago, and then the last couple seasons they still finished top ten. You know, in the top ten of the polls, number four this past year. But when you're signing classes this good every year, then 
11 and 2 and going to the Sugar Bowl is considered disappointing. Um, well, look, I'm I mean, all f- the, you know, you mentioned that, but they got they got whipped by Georgia last year. I'm sorry, they were whipped by Texas last year uh, in the bowl game. They got the last two years, LSU has beaten them by like combined, like by 55 points or something. Like they haven't even been close. Yeah, they haven't been. They haven't been at that level. Obviously, much has been made of the struggles at quarterback last season or receiver. Uh, look, I'm the first person to say, like, hey, rein in expectations. Uh, it's very, very hard to win a national championship in college football. It's probably not fair to judge a coach by whether he wins one or not. But at this point in time, okay, we're heading into a season in which LSU, I think we all agree, will take a step back. It might not be a huge step back. But there's no way they're going to play at the level they did last year, given losing not just Joe Burrow, but both you know Joe Brady and Dave Aranda and and Grant Delpit and all these guys. Um, and Alabama, I think, will be very good. But I don't necessarily think you look at Alabama, who they have coming back, and Georgia, who they have coming back, and say, oh yeah, Alabama is definitely better than Georgia. There's there's no reason at this point why they can't beat them, why they can't win the SEC. And of course, if they do that, they're going to be in the playoffs. So. Um, I think you said going into last season that it would be a disappointment, considered a disappointment if Georgia didn't win a national title either last season or this coming season. Do you still feel that way? I do, and I do for a lot of the reason you spelled out just a second ago, which was, you know, going when I think I first said that, I didn't know, like I knew LSU was going to get a lot better. I didn't know Joe Burrow would have the best season in the history of quarterbacks in college football. But... I was pretty sure that Tua and a bunch of those receivers were leaving. So I looked at it as, look, Alabama is not going to be as good in 2020 without Tua and without Jerry Judy um, and some of those other guys. Now, they do have Dylan Moses coming back, and he didn't play this year. And and certainly they kept some of their underclassmen. But just looking at it, I was like, all right, here's your window the next two years. And not to say that, that... you know, if, if it's they don't do it this year that you can't win a national title six or seven years into your run as a head coach. But one of the things I feel like has happened, then there's exceptions to this, but it's like you kind of show what you are in the job within your first four or five years as a head coach. And after a while, it's it feels like you lose momentum. And one of the things I wonder about, and again, I think Todd Munkin is a big key hire here to, to change the offense and maybe change the vibe around the program. But, you know, we know how buttoned up Kirby Smart is. Uh, the team that has played, and I use this example because I was at the uh, the SEC title game, the team that played LSU um, just was 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 way tighter than the team that, that whipped them. And, you know, the question is, can this team loosen up? And... Again, like you said, they were close to win a national title a couple of years ago, but they weren't close the last two years. And they have a lot of high-profile recruits, and it's just like, okay, I think this is a huge year for them because I think it just gets harder when all of a sudden people, you know, everything around you is pushing in the other direction. On the opposite end of the spectrum, USC, a program that almost annually has a class that is either number one or close to number one or certainly in the top five or top 10 finishes this cycle on 247 number 55 in the country number 10 in the pac 12 only ahead of washington state and arizona it's 
it's very unusual, and I certainly understand why it's noteworthy. But I, I guess I'm surprised that that pe- I'm surprised that people would be so surprised by this, given Clay Helton has been in limbo for two years now. Is it really any surprise that kids don't want to commit and sign to a program where they don't know who the head coach is going to be the next year? No, I think that's it. Look, and and to spin it forward, I would ask you, barring and you, if you look at their schedule. So they open with Alabama. Everybody knows they'll be an underdog in that game. And then the next the next seven games aren't just winnable. They should be favored in all of them and, and probably a bunch of them by double digits. And look, they still have a lot of players. Say what you want. Um, I could see why a freshman quarterback wouldn't, would be leery of going there. Keaton Slovis is really good, and they still have JT Daniels, and they have a bunch of good receivers, and they still have some pieces now. I mean, I think they're a they should be a 10-win team. The question I have, though, is if they play Alabama and it's not close, they could go win the next seven games before they go to Oregon at 7-1 and one going into November. But I think that Alabama game will be such a headliner, especially considering they got blown out by Iowa in the bowl game and the recruiting rankings we're talking about. I mean, you know, I don't want to say it's a must-win, but it's, it's in regard to, like, What's the only way you can turn around the recruiting ranking so it's not going to be this way again or close to it in 2021? I mean, that's what I think they're staring at is the horrible finish against Iowa, the horrible ranked recruiting class, and then you're going to open right out of the gate with this marquee game against Alabama. I mean, I don't, you know, look, if they if they're competitive and it's a tight game, and look, I think USC has enough players to make it that then you know what we'll see what happens but if it's not close uh you're going to see more of this and it's again it's going to be life on the hot seat for year three or year four or whatever it is here's how messed up things are around usc right now so i wrote the lead of my mailbag on wednesday was why i think usc could be a sleeper team in 2020 for all the reasons you said and i fully acknowledged right off the top about the the dysfunction at that place right now but that you could be staring at a scenario where they maybe they still get crushed by Alabama, but they go on to win the Pac-12. Perfectly realistic to me. Now, when you write something like that, I can expect to get either... Um, if I write something that's really glowing about a team, I might expect to get some hate tweets or some hate comments from their rival. And if I write something bad about a team, I might expect to get it from their own fans. What I've never seen before is that I wrote something nice about USC and got all these angry... USC fans angry that I'm drinking the Clay Helton Kool-Aid or that like they want him gone so bad that they don't even want anybody to suggest that he might be successful. Well, that's where we're at. I mean, look, I think they want it over. They don't want anybody looking for silver linings. They're done. Right. And so the question is, is there anything possible he could do to reverse that feeling? And the only thing possible is to beat Alabama and go on a roll where they get get out of the gate eight and no, because if not for that, again, you know, look, we talked about the economics of what it would would have taken to fire Clay Helton and turn the page on USC football. That wasn't happening, but now you're dealing with the reality, and that's that's kind of what you were writing into yesterday, and why you got the reaction. There was a lot of frustrated USC fans, and unlike probably what the perception of other parts of the Pac-12 footprint. The USC has a big fan base, and it's, a, it's just the one that's really pissed off right now. I get it, 
uh, I just don't know if people if they understand like the, the negativity, the massive negativity is certainly not helping him recruit. It's probably making it close to impossible. And I don't think people understand like, okay, let's say you get your wish and Clay Helen gets fired after this year. The the extent of these back to back or maybe even back to back to back disappointing classes, you know, you think going if you're upset about going eight and five, I mean, it could get much worse once you're talking about a roster that is just not um, that's not even that good. That that you know, you could be the next coach might have to deal with some losing seasons. Um, I don't know. The whole way USC has handled this has been just ridiculous. As I pointed out in the mailbag, they've now fired pretty much everybody both above and below Clay Helton while keeping him, right? The president's gone. The AD's gone. Lin Swan. Once uh, Mike Bone came in, he fired some of uh, Lin Swan's top lieutenants. So cleaning house on that level. And then over the last two off seasons, Clay Helton has changed over almost his entire coaching staff. But he's still standing somehow. And... Uh, and that's why we are where we are. Anything else? Uh, you know what? What, what uh, interested you most about signing day? Well, right now, maybe the most talented defensive lineman in the country, Jordan Birch. He grew up right near the University of South Carolina. He's a South Carolina kid. He's six six two seventy. You know, pretty freaky athlete. There's been a weird uh, bit of drama in what has been, for the most part, a drama free late signing period other than him so uh a month ago or whatever it was six weeks ago he committed to south carolina publicly on tv but didn't sign anything and the word was because he wanted to do it with his teammates uh well that opportunity was wednesday and he didn't do it and our our south carolina reporter uh josh kendall did an interesting you know reached out to and tried to speak to him and the mom said no interviews and a few hours later, South Carolina, Will Muschamp, who was, by the way, and this is a, creates an added bit of awkward moment, Will Muschamp's son was a quarterback there, and he's now going to be a walk-on at Georgia, his dad's alma mater. Will Muschamp was there at that press conference where the biggest recruit Will Muschamp could have signed in the last five years is committed yet hasn't signed anything. So what's going to happen? Is Jordan Birch actually going to end up at South Carolina? We'll see. Um, it's it's it is very puzzling why something has why he hasn't signed anything yet though, and that's you know look the other thing I would say with signing day and I think this is something that we've learned in the last couple of years not just with the early signing period but more with the grad transfer element of it is if your school missed out on a player or they think they missed out or whatever you know what in some ways they may be better off for it now. Because this leaves a lot of schools with the opportunity for maybe two or maybe three or maybe four spots. And maybe there's some grad transfers who are out there now, but most likely there are grad transfers who could be out there you know, into the spring. And I think that's when you may see guys, whether they're power five players, group of five players, or even FCS guys that some schools may pick up to fill out their roster and compete for starting jobs where in reality some of those some of those high school recruits may not have been in that position uh and those guys often can be difference makers i use the example of cole tracy who is lsu's kicker who came from assumption which is a you know like a division three school and i think in in massachusetts that kid was a difference maker for them so um keep an eye on who your school may pick up in the next 
you know next four or five months yeah you know one of my observations uh is do the recruiting sites need to given how much a part of the sport the transfer portal is now do the recruiting sites need to figure out a way to I don't know if you would replace the rankings you do now, but maybe have separate rankings that take into account the fact that, uh, okay, let's say a school only signs 15 kids to letter of intents, and that affects their recruiting ranking. But then they're adding three or four grad transfers, and some of them are really good. They don't. If that's who the scholarships are going to, do we need to take that into account? For example, should Mississippi State get some sort of credit in its recruiting class for the fact that it is giving one of its scholarships to KJ Costello, a, a former all pac 12 quarterback. Like, I don't know. I don't know what the right way to do that. Obviously. Well, that's it's all somebody who's more anyway. of a, I mean, one of the, cause I brought this up to uh, our friend Barton Simmons, who, who is the lead analyst that's at two, four, seven. And one of the things that you'd hear back is just, it's like how from a lot of people in the bit, in the recruiting side of it on the online recruiting world, is how would you necessarily like what would Joe Burrow have been? Would he have been a three star guy? Do you give him the same grade you did when he was coming out of high school where one site had him a three star, the other one had him as a four star? There's certain guys who might have been five stars who are now maybe three star guys because they they haven't proven to be that much. So I think that was one of the challenges, but I've argued this for a long time. I go back to my meat market days. You know, Ole Miss had to count on their internally Jevin Sneed. He was a transfer from Texas. He would have been a big recruit for them. He was a huge recruit for Ole Miss. But that didn't count in the recruiting rankings online, but it certainly counts in the scholarships in terms of how you have to allocate it. So, again, I think this is all cosmetics. I'm not sure. You know, you and I spent a bunch of time talking about that Georgia was the number one ranked class. I really don't think it matters that much whether you're the number one class or you're the number five class. I really don't think it's, in the end of the day, it, it makes that big of a difference. Well, if you look at the the points on 247, there's not much of a gap between number one and number five. I'll tell you where there is a big gap. You look at, let's say, number eight, Florida. Just going by their points, right? Florida is actually closer to being number 16 than they are to being number four. So it's like once you get to that point in the rankings, it's a it's a big jumble. I think number one is mostly important symbolically because if you look back, at, and certainly our time covering the sport, the schools that got number one classes won national championships. Maybe not immediately, but there was, there was a pretty big association. You know who I always think of when I think of what the situation Kirby Smart's in, getting back to what you said earlier about you know, if you don't do it after a certain period of time, you know, you know what you got. Well, Mac Brown, for the first, let's see, seven years of his time at Texas was known as pretty much that, Mr. February. He would sign these number one classes or close to number one classes every year. And they wouldn't they would get beaten by Oklahoma and they would they would go to a nice bowl, but they wouldn't be in national championship contention after the Red River game. And then finally he gets Vince Young and finally in two thousand five they break through and win it. Uh, it can happen if you keep recruiting that level of talent. Well, year I after think year after year. what's missing is Vince Young was a transformational college player. Georgia hasn't had that, right? No, they have. I mean, I mean Justin Fields have, could have been yeah, that they guy. they might have had it in Justin Fields. That's right. They might yeah. have had it in Justin Fields. But, you know, you and I are, had, had talked about this. I think we were a little more skeptical on the on – the, um, you know, the early draft rankings and the hype around Jake Fromm. He was a good college quarterback, but I think the people talking about his, like, top five pick, 
I think they were kind of overselling it. I just think that when you look at some of these, um, you know, what it takes to take a program and get it over the hump, it takes somebody being Vince Young, it takes somebody being Joe Burrow, um, it takes that guy who just can put a program on his back. To some degree, a large degree, Janus did that at Florida State. Florida State was another one that was like constantly Absolutely. winning, recruiting, you know, signing day battles, but was sputtering at times when they probably probably shouldn't have. I mean, look, I think Deshaun was that guy at Clemson. They've had plenty of five-star guys. They may not have had the the as many of them as some of these SEC heavyweights, but Deshaun was the guy who carried them over into the promised land. And I just think that's, you know, let's see if, if you know, maybe Jamie Newman will be that guy. I don't know. Um, but, the, you know, to go full circle on from where we started. We got to wrap here, but real quick, Justin Fields may be the perfect example of why, uh, of the poster for what we were talking about, about how you, how that should be part of the rankings. Last year in 2019, Ohio State had the number 14 class in the country, a relatively small class with 17 commitments. But Justin Fields was technically part of that class, and he was one year removed from being a five-star quarterback. And then, of course, he ended up being, I mean, if they hadn't gotten him, I don't think you would have seen them in the playoff last season. So yeah. there's got to be a way to factor the, that in. you know where the Joe Burrow class was ranked when he signed? With LSU? Yeah. Um, I remember he signed several months after signing day, but where were they? Number 15. Yeah, so like he couldn't have factored that in on signing day, but once they did get him... That would have been a trickier one, though, because he hadn't played. So when I, I was no, thinking, look, when you were saying, like, like... Yeah, yeah. No, when you were saying, like, how do you rank them? That's, I mean, that and, is a question, yeah. Yeah, well, in my mind, I was thinking, well, you would just do... Like, with Max Olson's great, you know, article he does every year, re-ranking the recruiting classes from four years ago, he just assigns a point value based on all-conference starter, multi-year starter, whatever. And so, like, K.J. Costello would be worth that, but... How do you do that with somebody like Joe Burrow, who three years into his career hadn't played yet? That's that's a lot tougher. Justin Fields had had played sparingly. Um, I think you would just have to make a qualitative assessment on based on where we, he is to this point in his career. What do we see his potential as? And everybody would have undershot Joe Burrow. Obviously, I'm guessing he would have been in that system. He would have been like a three star. But that's fine. You know, guys can exceed expectations. I just think you got to get some sort of credit for that. Um, we had so much to get to this week that we ran out of time for the mailbag, but we have some great mailbag questions sitting there. So I'll tell you what, next week, barring some sort of D'Antonio type bombshell next week, we will devote a quite a bit of the podcast to your questions. So send them to the audible pod at gmail.com. We'll see you next week. If you enjoy the audible, please subscribe on Apple podcasts, Google play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link theathletic.com slash the audible that's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. Yeah.